As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor, and my arms are in the air for a Champions League review edition of the show. Uh, I'm excited to talk about Real Madrid's 1-1 draw with Manchester City. Odd to say I'm excited to talk about a draw. I'm almost as excited to talk about Inter's 2-0 away win uh, against Milan. They will play the return leg in the exact same stadium. We'll see how it goes. Joining me to talk about those games and a couple other things are Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. You ready for the enthusiasm today, or are you uh, caught off guard by the the loudness? No, no, I expected it. You know, it was it was a little bit of a down day yesterday, just in that the arms were down. I think the mm-hmm. performance was good from the entire group, but coming in today, you know, we're we're close to the end of the week. We got through Hump Day. We got over uh-huh. Hump Day, if you uh-huh. will. I, I expected nothing less from you, Taylor. Great work to start. I, I appreciate it. I did also try to dress in a style that would not immediately annoy Graham Ruffin, who does seem to have uh, <laughs> high standards when it comes to fashion these days. <laughs> uh, hello, Taylor Rockwell. I'm not sure if I have high standards high standards as such, just higher standards than Manchester City arriving <laughs> at the Santiago Bernabeu in white shirts, uh, washed jeans and black shoes like they're going to sign you up to an extra year of your broadband contract. <laughs> Was it the also was it the unbuttoned nature of yes. the white shirts? Like if they'd been buttoned all the way up, would you be more okay with it? Uh, I don't know. There's I yeah. don't know if there's if there's a way to make that look look good. I mean, Rodri had it tucked in to his jeans with the does. belt as well. Uh, Alexis on Cooligans uh, or on the on Morning Footy, he described it as uh, he looked like your mum's new friend who will be staying. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good look. It really, really wasn't. It was, and they're slightly baggy too, which I guess is back in style. But I think like super baggy is what's in style, not slightly form fitting, but not quite with the unbuttoned shirts and the untucked shirts. It was a look, though. Uh, Graham, am I correct in saying that you were more impressed by Pep's fashion choices? This is how we're starting this Champions League <laughs> review, by the way. Uh, fashion one hundred and one. Then we'll get into the actual game. Pep looked good, so you could tell it was an important match because Pep was actually wearing like proper manager's clothes again with an actual suit jacket. I never thought I'd see the day again. I thought those days were 
long, long gone. He normally wears some kind of just giant snood as a jumper now, and this was actually like this fitted him and looked pretty decent. Which Grim? Which Doctor Seuss character is a giant snood? I I don't remember what color. I don't. <laughs> how big is it? I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> I'm not sure. Joe, you tell me. All right. The, the snood thinks that that's rude. Your attitude, Mister Lowry. Uh, wow! Nice job, <laughs> rhyming. Good work, uh, Joe. Since we've talked about fashion, we should also cover your area of expertise. Uh, was this a pep overthink game? We got to get that out of the way right oh, away. Oh no, that's a good. <laughs> I don't. I don't know, man. They didn't win, and they weren't super aggressive. So maybe there was instru- I mean, I think there are probably instructions in this game about the the control that City wanted to have, and I don't think they really maximized that control to actually turn it into something more. Pretty much at, at any point in this match, barring one or two kind of fleeting moments. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, I want to be on record, and I think I am pretty clearly at this point, that I think that whole discussion about Pep overthinking is, is, is totally pretty silly and, and, a, and a bit ridiculous. <laughs> so I think in general, this was a good game. Both sides had some good tactical stuff going on, and man, some individual performers that just lit this thing on fire. Let's let's stick with that for a second, because I think uh, in, in the previews, we talked about this a little bit. I felt like this was going to be a Man City comfortable win. I watched... Uh, Madrid in the Copa del Rey final, and they were good, but not great, and it felt like there were going to be plenty of areas for City to capitalize upon Mm. and exploit, Uh, and so going into this one, I thought it was going to be a very dominant performance from City, and it was in terms of possession and and the like, but not really in terms of chances created, so this one did not quite go the way I thought it would. Graham, were you surprised by the opening 30 minutes or so, or was this about what you expected? The opening 30 minutes were what I expected. So it was an impressive start. To a a degree, it was an impressive start by City, who had 71% of possession in the first 25 minutes. And in the first 10 minutes, they were really high and they were pressing high. And I thought it took Real Madrid a little bit of time to, to, to settle. But the thing is, Real Madrid do this a lot, right? They're generally okay with giving you the ball because of the space it opens up for them. And Man City, as you kind of reference, Taylor, they weren't able to find another gear in an attacking sense. They weren't able to get Erling Haaland into space. And look, we've seen this at times previously this season where he doesn't have many touches of the ball. I think he had 21 touches of the ball in this game. That isn't really a gauge of how well Haaland is playing, but I never really felt like they, they were able to get him into space. They certainly weren't able to get him in behind and when Haaland was doing that thing we've talked recently about Haaland getting more involved in the possession play and dropping deep and we saw that in the Arsenal game in the the Premier League he did that very effectively but when he was doing that Rudiger who was just all over Erling Haaland. I don't know yeah, if anyone yeah. has seen yeah. some of the I know exactly of, what you're talking about. Of, yep. of Ru- Rudiger. There, there is, I mean, that battle between him and, and, and Rudiger was just fantastic. There's a clip where essentially Rudiger is, it looks like he's kind of nuzzling into the neck yeah. of Haaland and, and he is sticking right on him and he, he embraced the physical bat- battle, Rudiger, because against the Viking, you're, go- you're going to need to do that. And he was just a, a general nuisance um and i i really enjoyed that i mean i enjoy harland as well just dusting defenders but i also enjoyed seeing someone matching up to him and that kind of nuisance factor that poop housery that feels like we're maybe losing that art in the modern game i mean you rarely see anyone squeezing nuts vinnie jones style and i feel like <laughs> rudiger wasn't far away from doing that with, uh, with Erling Haaland. So basically the point I'm getting to was City had loads of the ball, but they never really... <laughs> a weird a weird way to get to this point, I admit, but they, they never really were able to find that extra gear in the final third. I'm glad that you wrapped up with that because I wasn't sure how to yes and the Vinnie Jones <laughs> thing. So I'll yes in the end instead. I, I'm generally... 
slow to give Real Madrid credit for some of the tactical things that they do, because it seems to me, and we'll talk more about this in our Big Thing episode later this week, it seems to me that Real Madrid forever have been controlled by the players, right? Everything they do is is about the players. They are the ones, you know, in terms of the on-field play, even more than other clubs around the world, they're the ones that dictate what's going on. They dictate how generally the game's being played. They dictate how, where, how and where the ball is moving, all that stuff. In this game, though, specifically, and at other times in, in Carlo Ancelotti's time at Real Madrid, I think you can point to like half a dozen really smart tactical things that Real Madrid did. And Graham, you got to one there with Rudiger on Erling Holland. That was just part of a, a broader man-oriented defensive scheme from Real Madrid. So they were super fluid defensively, basically playing out of a 4-3-3. Like that would shift into more of a, a 4-5-1 defensively. But really, they were going where City were going. They were going where City's midfielders were going. They were going where Erling Holland was going. It was a lot of man marking from Fede Valverde, maybe blocking off Kevin De Bruyne for stretches. Luka Modric doing the same to Gundogan on the other side. Tony Kroos stepping forward when he needed to. You had the center back stepping out of the back line when you know maybe Erling Holland would drop, even though he didn't do that a lot. But they were still very tight to him. Real Madrid came into this game with a very clear idea of. We're going to give up the wings in in certain moments. We're really going to do a lot of work to block off the midfield. And City, there are other challenges for City. Maybe we'll talk about them later. But you know, credit to Real Madrid for executing so well. I thought Denny Carvajal did a good job in this match over on the right side against Jack Grealish. Like, by and large, Real Madrid did a really good job in those one-on-one individual matchups that they tried to create. It's not an easy thing to do against Man City. There's no easy way to defend against Man City. But for... Almost all of this game, you, know, you guys mentioned the first 30 minutes of, of City having the ball but not doing much with it. You can pretty much apply that to the whole game, other than, I guess, the stretches in the second half where Madrid wrestled a bit of control away. But, like, City did did nothing on the ball in this game. It took a De Bruyne wonder strike for them to get somewhere. It was it was impressive defending from Real Madrid. Yeah, I think I, I, that was the thing that stood out to me because I had those numbers. And I, and I think re-watching it, it stands out all the more because in the moment, it feels like this is just pure domination for Man City. Not even just the possession. Uh, it's the number of accurate passes. It's the number of shots. And a really key one was the passing uh, completion percentage. City's was 94% 15 minutes in. Madrid's 76%. And a lot of that was Madrid sort of just having to go long on occasion and not get caught in possession deep in their own territory. And it felt in those moments like, oh, this is City's game plan completely going to plan, except that then all those shots are from distance and they're not really from threatening positions and they don't get many looks. And you, you watch it again and you realize like it's an incredibly controlled performance from Real Madrid and the way they defended. And I think the Rudiger one, the Graham, Graham, the clip you're talking about, it fully looks, if you don't know the context, which I didn't when I first watched it, I thought he was messing with him. Like I thought he was just like messing around like it's a dead ball and he's sort of like playfully trying to aggressively defend the way you would if you're playing like your friend on another team and you're just sort of like hugging, like bear hugging him 40 yards away from the ball just as a joke. And then you realize like, no, that is what they did to Erling Holland the entire game. They just did an incredible job, Real Madrid, of playing a controlled defensive game and being really annoying. And I don't mean that yeah. in a backhanded way. It's the thing like Danny Carvajal shoving Jack Grealish into the boards and then going down and knowing exactly what he's doing. You can see him grin as he kind of gets up and walks back. And Part of that is like seeing what he can get away with. Part of that is disrupting the flow, annoying City, just taking them out of their game a little bit. And as soon as they don't have that electric, sharp focus, that is where I think Brad Madrid were able to find their, their moments and find their opportunities. And it's little things like in the lead up to the goal, Bernardo Silva trying to pull back Kamavinga, but not 
going fully in and not picking up that yellow card that we've seen Pep's teams utilize in the past. How often have we seen Fernandinho do that three times before he gets a yellow card? But in this game, I, I feel like there wasn't that next level, that little 1% difference in yeah. the kind of switched on to this. That's a word I just made up of Man City. And I think it costs them even if they're able to get a point uh, in this game. Their execution in this game, I didn't think was great. It wasn't It wasn't bad, but we've seen higher standards of execution from them. And there were a couple of times when Grealish on the left side, I agree, Joe Carvajal did generally do a good job against Jack Grealish, but Jack Grealish is so difficult to defend against. And I saw a, a, a stat from Opta that said he created seven chances, which was the most by an away player in the Champions League since something ridiculous, like it was 2007 or something like that. So even with Carvajal doing a good, jo- a good job against uh, Grealish, there were opportunities when Grealish was able to stand up his man. There was a couple of times when Haaland moved on to Alaba and you think, uh-oh, that's, that's the mismatch right there. They've created the mismatch. Grealish has got the ball. If the ball is a good one, Haaland creates that yard of space against Alaba. Alaba's got no chance whatsoever. And the and the ball was poor. Or the ball wasn't perfect. It maybe wasn't poor, but it wasn't perfect. So those are the margins at this level of the Champions League. And watching this game, I certainly over the Milan derby, which I enjoyed for different reasons, this felt like a very high quality game. Even when City weren't executing as well as they could have, it kind of reminded me of the the margins and how good you need to be to make a difference at this yeah. standard, at this level of the Champions League. Yeah, Grim, that Optostat really confuses me, to be honest. I wonder how they define chances created because, I mean, City, City had 10 shots in this game and so maybe Grealish had like either assists or MLS assists on those shots. But like, on the whole, they they didn't create anything in this match. Like, I don't know where the where the chances were. They had 0.55 expected goals, according to FOTMOB, in this game. And single-game XG is something that you should take with a grain of salt because it doesn't always capture all the dangerous moments, right? So maybe Opta defines creating a chance as, you know, creating some opportunity where you can run in behind the back line and, and you know, maybe it's something that, that doesn't show up in the shots or in the XG. But, yeah, I, I don't... I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I guess I need to go back through and, and watch this game again. But one thing I will say, you mentioned Grealish. I wanted to point out, you know, you're also talking about City not being all the way sharp, right? In this match, I, I thought a big problem for City, even even giving credit to Real Madrid and how good their defensive shape was, they're still vulnerable, right? Like that midfield is old outside of Fede Valverde. David Alaba's old, and there's a reason we've seen him move from, you know, playing striker for Austria. It's not true, but you know, moving moving back the field progressively throughout his career. Like there are vulnerabilities in this team. Carvajal is is old and, and seems like Real Madrid are keen to replacing the replace him this summer. City were not nearly dynamic enough with their off-ball movement. I felt like in this game, they come out in this 3-2-2-3 shape, which we've seen them use over and over again this season. It's not a new thing, but Pep has has really liked it for a lot of this year. And they've got Jack Grealish and Bernardo Silva wide, and they've got Gundogan and Kevin De Bruyne as sort of the two more narrow players in this attack. And then they've got Erling Holland up top doing whatever he wants, right? So in this match, you had Grealish and Silva so wide, creating gaps, Right, creating gaps, they would pull Carvajal, they would pull Kamavinga wide, and then they would run through that seam, or they should have run through that seam. But Gundogan was pretty flat-footed, and on the other side, De Bruyne was pretty flat-footed. It took, as far as I could clock it, it took all the way to the 52nd minute for them to actually exploit that space. It was John Stones to Bernardo Silva out wide on the right side. Kevin De Bruyne then had already started his run in behind Kamavinga. Silva one touches it to De Bruyne, De Bruyne shoots and draws a good save, but he was slightly offside in that moment. We just didn't see those patterns, and City are really good at that stuff. Like, they needed more of those sequences to really exploit the space they were creating in Real Madrid's backline, or, or to exploit yeah. the space that was behind a 
not totally slow, but at times vulnerable Real Madrid backline, and that stuff just didn't come. All in all, I'm not really sure how much that mattered because the De Bruyne goal is huge in this game. Like without that, I am I'm probably a bit more critical about City's approach, but they did keep control. Pep limited Real Madrid's counterattacks and, and limited their attacking ability. It just it wasn't a pretty Man City or even a particularly effective Man City attacking performance. And I was surprised that Pep didn't make any changes in the second half to bring on a couple of players who could have used that space that they, they were in some phases opening up. I mean, Julian Alvarez is, for me, an obvious one who could have done something with that space. Even, I mean, I'm looking through the lineups here. Was was, was Mares on the bench? Mares yeah, and was. Foden were both on the bench, yep. And Foden, of course. So I would actually kind of pin, uh, highlight, uh, pinpoint uh, Mares there, who in that space between kind of defence and midfield obviously can pop a shot off and that and that's where the city equalizer comes from is from Kevin De Bruyne using that space and obviously you can't really count on Kevin De Bruyne doing that all the time it's an absolutely ridiculous shot I mean the angle from behind that that shot from Kevin De Bruyne the technique the way that he hits that so hard and it's only like maybe three inches off the ground and it's three inches off the ground all the way into the back of the net so you can't really count on those moments happening all the time but nonetheless it felt like there were players on the bench for City that could have made a, a more of an impact on the game than the ones they actually had on the pitch. I agree with 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 that for sure, that there could have been uh, more substitutions, more adjustments. I do think Pep makes some little adjustments at halftime because, Joe, you talked about uh, Grealish and Bernardo Silva being very wide, boots on the chalk, and I saw that in stretches, especially in the second half, but there are also moments, and maybe these were just sort of outlier strange moments, but I watched... Uh, the game, like the 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 stream on my television, and then I watched the tactical cam uh, on the laptop. Uh, and so, because there's a little bit of a difference, I really appreciated that you could watch the game live, and then if there was something you wanted to pay attention to, go look at the tactics cam. And routinely, especially in the opening 20 minutes, when City were in sustained possession in uh, Madrid's half, but especially in Madrid's like defensive third, Grealish would move very central. So too would Bernardo Silva. And there was there were chunks, uh, like uh, moments of possession in which Carvajal kept looking over to his right, expecting there to be somebody out wide. And City had no one on that entire half of the pitch. They had everybody crowded to one side. And I'm assuming the idea was overload that Real Madrid midfield that is a little bit older, a little bit slower, and doesn't have the numbers as much, uh, and and try to find a way to play through and maybe make somebody overcommit, and then you can play little balls in behind or little balls through the gaps. But it just it didn't work. And I think in the second half, they were much more focused on spreading the pitch, having players stay wide and opening up gaps through the middle. And it almost felt to me like they were so focused on getting that like down again that then they don't make some of those changes maybe the way they would have if they had been attacking those spaces earlier or more frequently. But it again, this is probably a hindsight 2020 grain of salt sort of thing. But I think watching it again and seeing those opportunities, seeing those gaps in space, I continued to be confused why City weren't able to create more aside from that Real Madrid just put numbers behind the ball, did exactly what they needed to do. And even when you have moments like Holland does get a little bit of separation on David Alaba, Alaba then slides in and makes a perfect block with a slide tackle and the shot doesn't come to anything. And so I think Real Madrid maybe rode their luck a little bit, but I think also City didn't create as many opportunities as I expected. Joe, is that something that you saw as well, City struggling to create those clear-cut chances? I guess we've already talked about that a little bit, but I still am at a loss for how this team was so successfully stymied. Yeah, no, I think you make some good points there, Taylor, on on folks coming inside in moments. And, and for me, those are pre-planned. I think you could tell it, it didn't happen very often. And some of it, 
Some of it was Jack Grealish maybe doing a little bit of freelancing, but I, I saw it mostly with him on that left side where he would tuck in. Mm-hmm. But that was only really when I think he expected City to actually break through on the right, where then he could go and crash the box and be an extra runner, right? It was going to be Erling Holland, and then it was going to be the weak side winger. But the problem is the progression just never fully came through on the wing. And so then you've got Grealish tucked inside and, and nothing's really happening. So I don't think that was like a major theme of the game in terms of where those wide players were positioned. I think most often they were wide, but between how good Real Madrid were defensively and how not passive, but certainly not dynamic City were in the attack. Like they were, they were pretty happy to just kind of have the ball and, and be on the more static side. It led to a pretty congested game that again was, was broken through by the quality of these individual players. Let's talk about some of those individuals in just a moment. First, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the rest of this game, as well as the Milan Derby uh, back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, We were talking about uh, Real Madrid 1, Manchester City 1. Graham, we haven't really talked about the goals in detail. We haven't really talked about some of the individual performers. Uh, Did anybody stand out for you? I'm assuming you had man of the match Kevin De Bruyne, just like everybody else. Just kidding. Uh, I I love Thierry Henry being annoyed by that one. Uh, That was a great clip as well. So was he annoyed? Did, what, did, did he thank Vinicius? Or? He, he did. Uh, it was up. For, it was a toss-up for him between Vinicius and Kamavinga. And when sure. he is then informed that it was Kevin De Bruyne, he does the perfect Thierry Henry, like, uh, that's, that is a stupid decision face. And then saying, like, come on, man, <laughs> come on. Like, it's just such a, like, such disrespect to the decision makers there. And I think he even throws in, like, we all played at a high level, uh, pointing at himself, Mika Richards and Jamie Carragher. And it's like, we know how this goes. It should have been one of those two. And I, I think I agree. I think Vinicius, Vinicius once again, uh, reminding us all that he is yeah. quite good. Yeah. I, I didn't see that clip. I did see a weird clip without any context of, Thierry Henry Watching handing Kate a glass Abdo of drink. water to Kate Abdo or something? What can exactly. it, is, is there an explanation for that? What happened there? I have no idea. I saw that clip as well, <laughs> and I found it odd that both he and Jamie Carragher seemed to <laughs> yeah. stop to watch Kate Abdo drink water. There must water. be context. That we're I'm missing. guessing she just had like a, a frog in her throat or a cough, and so okay. somebody brought her water, and then they all sure. just like made a show of slowing the show down so that everybody had to uh-huh. watch her drink. I don't know. That's my guess. Well, it seemed like he was as, as impressed with Vinicius in yes. this game as he was with Kate Abdo's uh, drinking style. Yeah. This, uh, this was an incredible performance by him. His goal was an absolute laser. It, it was, it's one of those goals you need to see in full speed because that was the astonishing thing about it. And, and when they slow it down in the replays, that doesn't quite do it justice. And I think it was an illustration of how good players are at this at this level and how difficult it is to stop them because... Although this is a transition moment for Madrid and they've got in between the lines, City are probably thinking in that moment, this is generally fine because we've, we, we, we've stopped. You know, Real Madrid's whole game is designed to get in behind, in, in behind and they're not in behind. 
and Vinicius does that. So he, he can do this sort of thing in front of a defensive line as well. He's not just a threat in behind a de- defensive line and getting to the byline as he so often does. This is what he can unleash in front of an opposition defence as well. But the way that Modric and Kamavinga played through the press so earlier good. in the move so with, a, with a 1-2 and then opened up the space for Kamavinga to drive forward, that was almost as good as the finish itself. And I, and I thought Kamavinga kind of agree with Thierry Henry here. Vinicius Kamavinga, I thought as, as well, was particularly excellent in this game. And he's been excellent for a while in that left-back position that obviously isn't his natural position. He's uh, naturally by trade a central midfielder. But going back a, a, a maybe a couple months now, he's been playing there and he looks at home and he gives... Real Madrid, that option of him driving into the, the middle. We saw this in the in the quarterfinal against Chelsea. That was kind of the first time I'd really seen Ancelotti do that to such an extreme degree where he pushes Camavinga into the centre. He then creates the space for Vinicius, for Vinicius in the one-on-one areas and then obviously provides an extra man in the centre of the pitch. But he was he was so important to Real Madrid and, and played a very important role in this goal. Uh, Kyle Walker got a hug from Vinicius Jr. Sorry, after Taylor, who? Who was it? Who was uh, it? Uh, K- Kyle the Dummy Walker, I believe. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> I apologize. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, do you all feel like Pep Guardiola was pleased with what Kyle Walker gave him? Vinicius scores, but I don't think I'm putting that one on Kyle Walker yeah. as much as I am the entire transition to attack from Real Madrid. That was like less of a less of a battle than I had hoped it would be in this game, and part of that's because I think of how controlled. City were. Now, I will say there was a stretch, and I referenced it earlier, a stretch in the second half where Madrid had more of the ball, and, and the possession ended up being much more even. I think Madrid even had more of the ball in general in the second half if you, if you average those numbers out. But, you know, there weren't as many of those Kyle Walker, Vinny Jr. 1v1 matchups as I wanted after the game. Walker came over and dapped him up and sort of like, you know, they had their little moment as, as competitors. Right. So which I assume Graham hated because it was it was. No, um, I actually loved that. I thought it was a, a really cool moment where both of them just were clearly enjoying that battle. I thought yeah. it was a cool moment. I just wanted more. I wanted more from that matchup, but we didn't get as much of it as we wanted. I guess Vinny still scoring like a crazy good goal does something for me in this game. And it really did because it was an amazing moment, a great sequence from Real Madrid. But I thought in general, Kyle Walker did well and it made sense for him to be that right sided center back, even if maybe he doesn't give. And I, I don't I don't know exactly what Pep is on about when he says, you know, Walker's not smart enough to do this job or whatever that initial quote was that we ripped on for so long. He does. He's. He's tucked in before, like he, yeah, he's, he's played as a midfielder. Right. He's played as a winger. Like he can, he's done whatever Pep wants him to do. But I guess not at that same level, maybe in possession. But defensively, it made sense for him to be that right-sided center back, so that in, in a back three, at least in transition, so that you know his pace could match up against Vinny Jr. And I thought on the whole, he did a pretty good job. Uh any other individuals we should spotlight from this one? Kevin De Bruyne, we've talked a little bit about that goal. Uh, quite good as well. I just enjoyed that it became like the artillery show uh, for stretches of this game, where it was just shots from distance. Uh, we're not getting anything close up, so why not uh, yeah. ha- have a go? Uh, I-, I know Madrid fans frustrated by the uh, refusal to call that ball out of bounds by the AR. I still don't know if it was, and I don't much care, because I think it's pretty debatable one way or the other, though Carlo Ancelotti would definitely agree he gets a yellow for his protestations there. But it leads to that goal, uh, and as a neutral, I'll take it because that goal was quite fun. Oh, yeah, it was a fantastic goal. I also enjoyed Duncan Alexander on Twitter called it the world's hardest shot competition, which is kind of what this match descended into in the second half. I enjoyed it. It It was something a little bit different. Yes. So with that said, we get City getting the equalizer, 
but having those periods uh, of dominance. I will add, I had in my notes uh, that I couldn't tell if this was City being completely dominant or Real Madrid sort of waiting for their moment. And I think immediately after that is when Madrid broke for the first time and the ball goes into Benzema and he has just a slightly heavy touch. Mm. He has another one that ends in a handball. But there were those moments where you could see what Madrid wanted to do on the counter, how they wanted to play, and then they end up getting that goal. Finishes one-to-one. Who do we think is more pleased with this result? I'm inclined to say City, based on the fact that it looked for all the world like they were going to lose this game 1-0, but also, I think in the post-match interview, Luka Modric talked about how this was an opportunity missed and how they're frustrated to have given up that goal because it it keeps City very much back in the tie. So it sounds to me like Madrid may be slightly more frustrated, though I think they'll be feeling quite confident going uh, to Manchester City for the return leg. I want to I want to preface this by saying that I will not be surprised by whatever happens in the second leg. Just mm-hmm. like I said, I wouldn't be surprised by anything that happens in this leg. Madrid have the individual talent. They have the adaptability. Like They have the fact that they're Real Madrid in the Champions League on their side. And Man City have the fact that they got a result here, that they kept it level. Away goals, not a thing. So you know that's not a huge advantage that they, that they got one. Nil-nil would have been the same. But they get a goal. They keep it level coming into the second leg. And, and I think it, it's clear to all of us, given what we talked about for the majority of this game, that City have another gear. Like We've seen it in the Premier League. We didn't really see it in this game. And Pep will have no choice but to go for it in the second leg because if, if you don't, then you're out of this thing, right? So there's, we're going to see a bit more from City in attack when and, and how. I don't know the answers to those questions, but I think City have the edge knowing that they have a little bit more left to give, knowing that they have some depth on the bench, and knowing that they're going to be playing at home in front of their fans. But like again, the margins between these teams are, are still small, even though I think City is the better team on the whole. In a, in a one-game, now, winner-take-all kind of contest, like Real Madrid's built for that stuff. Yeah, I I, I still think, and I agree, that City will be happier with this result. And, and even this, I think they'll be relatively happy to an extent with this performance. And and we'll never know, but this sort of felt like the match that a match that City would have lost last season. I guess we do actually have some evidence to support that idea, given City did lose this exact match last season. But just the way... In, in phases of this game, they were able to take the sting out of the game. They did it for a period just after they scored where, yeah, they're not they're not creating much, but equally, they're in control of the ball in a Champions League semi-final away to Real Madrid, the defending champions at the Bernabeu. Like, I think they'll be relatively content with doing that, knowing they've got a second leg at home to, 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 to come. And they did this for periods against, we spoke about this after the quarterfinal against Bayern Munich, where, again, it wasn't like they were playing in top gear, but... I think there is an awareness from City that of how to manage phases of games in Champions League knockout ties now. And Grealish came out and he spoke to BT Sport after the game. He mentioned that again, that Guardiola had talked to them about that. That was after the quarterfinal when Bernardo Silva came out and he said exactly the same thing. So this is a message that Pep is putting across to his players. And so not just the result, I think Pep will be relatively content with how they played, even though as we all, as we've detailed, City have another Mm -hmm. gear to go to. I agree with you both. I have one individual I want to talk about and how they respond to this one. It's Erling Holland. Uh, I know it's going to sound very obvious when I say he is a player that I think we should all keep an eye on in the second leg. Shock of all shocks, the guy who can't stop scoring goals is somebody to pay attention to. I mean, to. Rudiger will be keeping both eyes on him. He'll be licking well, him. This is exactly what I'm kind of <laughs> getting at, is with the way that played out, with him being annoyed, I would say, the entire game, and there's the other clips of Holland 
being tackled by two different players off the ball and still sort of riding those and somehow continuing his sprint forward. But but I think if Erling Holland is a person who reads his own press, I don't know if he is, but if he reads about performances, I, I don't think anyone's been truly critical of him or overtly like this was a bad game from him. But I think it was the general response I've seen is that he was somewhat anonymous in this game. And I think that is slightly unfair when you talk about the way he was defended, how much emphasis was put on containing him, frustrating him, limiting his ability to get on the ball in, in anything resembling a dangerous position. And I just wonder for a person who I think is performing at his ability and has had the success he has had this season, how does he respond to a, what will be perceived, I think, as a down performance. And I can see a scenario in which he comes out and scores a hat trick and is electrifying. I can also see a scenario in which he tries to do too much and tries to create stuff that he doesn't need to and tries to make too many runs and just wants to be more involved. I I, I think also the distraction of his dad. There's the story about him being uh, sort of escorted out of the VIP Have you seen the video? For, for throwing food. Yes, uh, I have. It's, a, it's an interesting one, too, because he definitely just looks very... It doesn't help that he looks like the uh, the owner of West Ham in Ted Lasso. He looks like Rupert from Ted Lasso, <laughs> Rupert, which yeah. which makes him look that much more villainous. He has said that there was no food thrown. Uh, Alfie uh, Alfinga Holland has said no food was thrown. That it was just some good natured ribbing. But then they were moved fifty yards away because maybe it got a little bit too heated. I don't know. It got a little food fighty, but you know, a little food. There's no food. There's no food but, being thrown. But I just think for Erling Holland, maybe there's a point to prove, and that can be a, a positive thing, or it can be him trying to do too much and sort of being a negative part of City's attacking yeah. plan. I don't know which of, of those it will be. Based on this season, I would back him to find a way to make something happen in that return leg. But I think that's what makes him even more compelling to watch in that second leg is how does he respond and does he respond by being the world-class athlete and world-class goal scorer we know he is or by being a frustrated individual who wants to you know be at that top, top level Maybe that can go poorly, too. So I think that that will be very captivating. Any other things that you all are paying attention to in that second leg or anything else to talk about from this game? Yeah, just on City there and, and going from the point you're making, Taylor, I think Holland is an interesting prism to look at Manchester City through, right? Because Holland, you're talking about him him doing too much. Person. For Erling Holland, yeah, absolutely. For Erling Holland, his, his version of doing too much is not the same as Jack Grealish doing too much. It's not the same as... Gundogan doing too much. It's not going to look like him getting on the ball all the time and dropping crazy deep. He doesn't want to do that stuff. Like he doesn't, he doesn't really care about that stuff. He wants to run right behind you, run at your goalkeeper and slam the ball into the back of the net. Like that's what he wants to do. So I think we're going to be able to see City's, City's aggressiveness, City's, you know, how effectively they have taken it up a notch from this first leg to the second leg by watching Erling Holland. Like, is he getting service? Are the wingers targeting, or, or more likely the number eights in De Bruyne and, and, and Gunduan targeting the space in behind the back line. Are they finding Holland? You know, he had 21 touches, I think, in this game, which is not a lot. He had three shots, mostly low-quality shots. Like, he wasn't great, but he wasn't bad. But whenever I see Erling Holland have, a, have an off day, which is pretty much just when he doesn't score because he's that good, it's almost always stemming from somewhere else, right? It's almost yeah. always stemming from the fact that that City aren't providing him with the kinds of opportunities that he needs to thrive. And so yeah, maybe it does result in Holland moving off the ball a lot more and not being in the right spots. Or or maybe 
City just take things up and and really start to target that space and behind a bit more or, or whatever space Real Madrid gives them and find Holland and, and he does have a fantastic game. I don't know which of those it's it's going to be. I would lean to, more towards the latter. I, I, Graham, I'm on your side. I think City still at the edge going into the second leg, but it will be fascinating to watch Holland in this second matchup. Yeah. I just think you're going to get this sort of match from Haaland every so often, the kind of striker that, that he is, and, and the better teams you play against are going to do a better job of of, of isolating him. I, I can understand why people might target him, because this was billed as Haaland versus Benzema, who, by the way, Benzema didn't really do all that much in, in, in this game either. And obviously Haaland didn't really cre- uh, have any opportunities and certainly didn't have any, many uh, high-quality shots on goal. But... I look at his performance against Leeds United that weekend where he did actually have a good number of opportunities. That, for me, is an Erling Haaland off day where on another day he puts away at least one of those one of those goals, not one where he doesn't uh, get much service from the rest of the team. We have lost Taylor Rockwell in terms of our internet <laughs> issues recording remotely, so I'm going to take us to our break. This is heading into the second break. After the break, we'll talk about the Milan derby, AC Milan against Inter Milan. We'll dive into that one very shortly. Stay with us. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? 
FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back, everybody, but mostly myself. Uh, my internet has dropped twice since uh, I last spoke. Uh, hopefully it holds up for the duration of the show. We'll soon find out. What definitely held up was the atmosphere at the San Siro uh, last night as Inter Milan got a 2-0 away win yeah. at their home stadium. It gets very confusing very quickly. But Graham, the atmosphere of that game was one of the things that I took a lot of notes about strangely the amount of singing the volume of the supporters even when a shot went wide how strongly they reacted i thought the atmosphere yeah. made that game truly a spectacle agreed it was absolutely incredible we were obviously watching on tv but the atmosphere came through on tv and i know some reporters who were there people like rory smith and miguel delaney they were saying on Twitter it, it might have been the loudest stadium they've ever been in. And these are guys who have been to the biggest matches all around the world. So for them to say that is a real illustration of what the atmosphere was like. The, the tifos as the players walked out were, were amazing. I'm trying to remember what the Milan one said. I think it said, um, hell is empty, all the devils are here. <laughs> which I thought was just a fantastic thing. I loved the whole stadium shouting the champions at the end of the anthem. I don't know if anyone else noted that at the end of the Champions League anthem, you know how it goes, the I champions, the whole stadium shouting that. And in the second half, the noise from the Milan fans got louder and louder. It was almost like they were trying to make something happen for their team on their own, as we'll talk about a little bit more. Not much happening for AC Milan, certainly in an attacking sense in, in this game. So, yes, I agree, Taylor. That was one of the, the main talking points from this game. There's so much talk about San Siro at the moment and what's going to happen to it in the future. Um, I've been lucky enough to go there and, and have the tour there. So I know it's not in the best shapes, in the best shape. Don't visit the bathrooms at the at the San Siro I would say at the moment I think what was uh -oh. it Ryan talked about at Old Trafford like the river of pee or something like yeah. that I think they might have one of those at San Siro as well but the the old place just has a, a magic to it and I, I and I, I think it has arguably never looked or sounded better than it did during this game how strange do you think it is, Graham, to go there as Inter and be the away team, but then next week be the home team? Like, I, I do genuinely wonder how big of a change, even just having, like, I know it's it's all Milan fans for this game, it'll be all Inter fans for yeah. the next game, but still, it's the same stadium, it's the same pitch, you're used to the locker rooms, I'm assuming. I, I wonder how just odd it is. I can't imagine it has as strong of an impact as going away to the Bernabeu or to the Camp Nou or whatever it may be. I'm sure it still has some impact, but I, I wondered that a lot throughout this game. UEFA should have brought back the away goals rule just for this match, just for a laugh, really, just for the banter. <laughs> um, yes, I also wondered how much of a difference that makes. I asked Twitter and nobody could give me an answer. Normally you ask Twitter, they, someone somewhere can give you an answer. But there are three dressing rooms at San Siro. So there's an AC Milan one, there's an Inter one, and then there's an away team oh, one. Oh, wow. Are, are in, were Inter in the away team dressing room last night or were they in their own dressing room? Because obviously it would make sense just to have them in their own dressing room, have AC Milan and Inter Milan in their own dressing room. But I do wonder if kind of UEFA rules and regulations restrict that. And so it'd be weird if Inter were in, in the away dressing room while they're their own dressing room is sitting empty at the stadium. I do kind of wonder, I would actually like to hear from a, from a player on this. It's something that I can't really provide much insight on because I have never played at the San Siro as an away player when it's your home stadium. I do kind of wonder if it makes much of a difference at all or whether these two matches are effectively being played at kind of neutral venues for both teams. 
Do you think there's an effort made to make sure that they are exactly the same locker room? Because I imagine if you're like an Inter there, player, no, you not. stray into the Milan locker room and it's got, you know, gold toilets or whatever, you're going so to be very annoyed if yours does not. It's the other way around. Inter's uh, dressing room is bigger than AC Milan's. Oh, Don't so ask you me know why, this. but yeah. It's, wow, it's a weird dynamic. <laughs> it, see, I, and then and then I found myself wondering. Like, we will talk about the game, but I genuinely like. I thought this was equally interesting because it's you know we're not breaking new ground. They've been playing in the same stadium for a while. We just haven't really talked about it. And last night was, I, I think, an occasion where it was really front and center. That it, it, it makes me wonder how those teams, how it affects their identity. That like you don't have City and United playing in the same stadium. You don't have Liverpool and Everton or Spurs and Arsenal or anything like that. Like, can you truly be hated rivals if you're sharing the same stadium, if you have a draw, uh, like a dressing room in the same facility? Or does that intensify it because you're that much closer and you both yeah. want it to be your home ground? I'm not really sure which impact it would have. I think it's the second one. I think the Milan teams have proven that you can be hated rivals and play in the same stadium and, and be so close together. I think it's the case of, you know, sometimes you go on vacation with your friends, right? Or, or even like whoever, right? And you're in the same place together for so long and you like these people. And you're still like, you're by the end, you're like, all right, let's, it's time to go. Like everybody needs some space. Imagine doing that. But with Joe, people, are you talking about Brooklyn right now? Maybe. I mean, let's, I was tempted to climb down the hole in Ryan's room. Let's put it that, no, not really. Mm. But Are you um, talking about that time you locked Ryan outside in Brooklyn? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we all want, I just turned the lock. You guys were chanting behind me, like, do it, lock him out, lock him out. <laughs> It's, I think that this is a case of proximity sort of breeding some contempt, mm-hmm. and there was already contempt to begin with. So it is a it is a unique rivalry in global soccer, and this game was a, a pretty special chapter, I think, in that rivalry, mm-hmm. at least for Inter fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I'm going to uh, say another controversial take. We had the conversation about who was happier between Madrid and City. Guys, I'm going to say Inter probably the happier of the Ooh, two probably, uh, based yeah. on this result. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. it, is, it is surprising to me a little bit how dominant Inter were. And we talked about this on the Patreon over on TSS Plus leading into this game. I, I said that Inter generally play pretty good soccer, right? And generally, I think they're a good team. But every time I hype them up on this show, it seems like they, they fall. And so I didn't really want to put myself out there for this game. But this was like the quintessential Inter Milan performance under Inzaghi. Like they looked really really sharp from the jump in this match. It was the classic 3-5-2 with some different variations and different phases like you'd expect. But man, they jumped all over Milan from the start of this match. Now Milan did some pressing as well, but Inter's was so much, it, it was so much better constructed and so much more effective. Their counterattacks were more effective. Their set piece play was effective. You get two goals inside of 11 minutes. And to me, guys, it felt like this thing was done after 11 minutes. Because if we know something about Milan, it's that they want to play on the break. And without Rafael Leal in this game, it was very, very difficult for them to do that effectively. But when Inter go up 2-0 and they can force Milan to have the ball and to really force them to break them down, like who's going to do that for Milan? Like Who are you afraid of? Are you afraid of Brahim Diaz in tight spots as a number 10? Yeah. Are you afraid of him really breaking through you with some ridiculous, crazy Mesut Ozil-style through ball? No, you're not, you're not afraid of that. You're not really afraid of any of these players and it, it didn't look like Inter were afraid. And, and at the end of 90 minutes, they didn't really have any reason to be. Yeah, the Paramount Plus commentators uh, did a great job of pointing out that I think these two teams have played each other three times this season. Inter have won two, and I believe they've won the two most recent uh, matches by being more aggressive, by by having a higher line, by pressing higher up the pitch, and just being more physical. That seems to have worked. So the speculation at kickoff was, will they go for that again, or will they adapt 
uh, because the expectation would be that Milan would have adapted to that. And I would say that it was more of the same from Inter. And it really did catch Milan out. I think Inzaghi gets his tactics right. I think he definitely gets his lineup right. Uh, does not start. Brozovic starts, uh, what, uh, Chalinolu, I believe, yep. uh, in there. Mkhitaryan. And that works out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Mkhitaryan uh, as well. And then uh, also Lukaku on the bench. Uh, and Dzeko comes in. And your first two goal scorers are the two guys who maybe people weren't expecting to start in uh, Dzeko and Mkhitaryan. So I'm going to say Inzaghi getting some decisions right right away, Graham. Yeah, he did. And this was in contrast to Pioli, who I thought got his game plan wrong. Now, obviously, no Rafael Leao in in this match. Certainly makes the match less fun, but also robs AC Milan of that direct threat. And it wasn't really until Origi came on that Milan had any sort of option to go direct. And that kind of says quite a lot about the situation they they were in, because Origi's not had a great season for AC Milan. And and he, he maybe... He was maybe the only player that they had that could give them them that directness. But it was surprising that AC Milan didn't try to match up against Inter in terms of their shape because they'd had a lot of success doing that against Tottenham and, and Napoli in the previous round. Also, the last time Milan played a back four against uh, against Inter, which is what they went for here, that was in the, the Supercoppa earlier this year and they were completely dismantled by Inter in that game. When they have used a back three against Inter and they've matched up against them, they've had a lot more. They've had a lot, a lot more joy, and they could have had they gone with a back three in this game. In theory, of course, you never know how it would work out in reality. But in theory, they could have stopped Inter's front two from matching up against Kaira and Tomori, who, by the way, the two of them had an absolute disaster class. They weren't helped, of course, by the lack of pressure from the Milan midfield, which at times was just completely non-existent like Bastoni just striding into not just into uh, the halfway <laughs> area but like into the final third of a, of of the pitch and getting to the edge of the box and there's a couple times when Tamori so Kair is engaging with Bastoni on the edge of the box Tamori also comes over to engage and then leaves Jekyll completely open Bastoni plays a, th- a, a through ball that's happened a couple times but one time it resulted in a very high value opportunity for Inter to make it 3-0 um, Mignon ha- makes the save to deny Jekyll but but had they gone with a back three, they could have they could have matched up. Um, they could have they, they they could have been able to they could have pulled the midfield into the wide areas and and uh, you know maybe Inter would would still have those passing channels. But they could have crowded them out on the edge of the box, and and that's essentially what Inter did with their three man defence against Giroud, who just had nothing at all in this match. Salamakas had a couple opportunities or a couple dribbles, I should say. They weren't opportunities where he was trying to 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 create something out of nothing. But he's not Rafael Leao, is he? And it just felt very comfortable for Inter. And a lot of that is down to the fact, I think, Inter Milan just have better players than AC Milan, particularly when Rafael Leao is missing. But I don't think the way Pioli set up his team helped at all. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, Inter had both advantages in this game. They had the talent advantage and they had the tactical advantage. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but Graham, I agree with every single point you just made about Pioli's issues with how he set the team up. You can see that probably most clearly at, at both ends of the field. So the, the first end of the field is when Milan were pressing, trying to press Inter. Giroud was at times 1v2, other times 1v3 against Inter's back line, depending on whether they were building with a, a three or a two in terms of the center backs there. And Inter just played like right through him or right around him over and over again. They would play the ball wide, maybe to the, the wide center back. Then the winger from Milan would step forward and then they just circle it quickly up to the wing back on that side. And then all of a sudden you're creating some advantages in midfield. You can pull the fullback out. I mean, the timing and the possession play and buildup was really sharp from Inter and the pressing structure either wasn't adaptive enough once the game had started or wasn't right from the start. Then on the flip side, 
You talked about the center backs. I totally agree with Milan's center back pairing have a really rough game. They were not ever put in a position to fully succeed going 2v2 against a really good strike force in Zeko and, and, and Martinez. The second goal speaks to this really, really clearly. It's Mkhitaryan's goal in the 11th minute. Inter Milan press. They mark off the midfield. So Mignon has to go long for Milan, goalkeeper. Inter win the second ball after Giroud tries to hold it up, but there's nobody really around him. Again, Milan looking disconnected. Then DeMarco gets the ball on that left side, cuts it back to Mkhitaryan outside the box, who can just waltz right forward. He can waltz right into the box because Kier and Tomori are off chasing Edinzeko and, and Martinez, right? It's 2v2 in the back, and they're panicked about dealing with those two players as they should be because those are the two main goal threats in this Milan team in this inter team excuse me but that just left so much space for Mkhitaryan to waltz right in they either needed a six to drop back in and give them more help in those moments or they needed an extra center back to be in that back line to give them more cover so they weren't scrambling all the time it just was a really rough Milan performance also a really good inter performance just the gap between these two teams look massive and Taylor you know right as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation like Inter are stoked. Like, they're the happier team. This this tie, as far as I'm concerned, barring a Rafael Leao masterclass in the second leg where he is somehow fully fit and has energy to go 90-plus minutes, whatever it's going to take, like, this thing's done. It's absolutely done. Did anyone see him on the sideline with his with his bucket hat, just yeah. with his head and hands, particularly in the first half, just his head and hands for the for the whole 45 minutes, seeing how his team were, were playing. AC Milan didn't play well at all in this one. Even, even little micro decisions like... Calabria marking Jekyll for the oh, for the corner yeah. where where Jekyll scores. Why like Calabria's half half his size and Calabria, I, I believe, in the Italian yeah. press came out afterwards and said, "Why am I on Edin Zeko?" So yeah. he had an issue with it as, as as well. Like even the 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 micro things were bad from Milan. Yeah. So what what happened there is I don't know actually how voluntary that decision was. I can still understand Calabria being frustrated because that that did not put him in a good position to succeed. But it's the eighth minute. This is the first goal for, for folks who either didn't see this game or have forgotten. It's it's uh, Inter taking a corner kick. It's Chalanolu on the corner kick on the left side for them. And the way this goes is there's a clump of players for Inter Milan at the penalty spot. Milan are man marking. I think there's four players there. So it's 4v4 in that space. And then Milan also have a line of zonal markers inside the six-yard box using that kind of hybrid approach that a lot of teams use. So the, the way that Milan start marking... Edin Dzeko, who's one of the players at the penalty spot, so he's being man-marked, is with Tomori, which is like a, a much better matchup, center back versus striker, big big boy striker. It makes sense. You can't do a whole lot better than that. And so those two players are, are starting matched up against each other. But then Edin Dzeko, who's sort of at the back of this clump of players at the penalty spot on the weak side, starts to kind of curl his run around Denzel Dumfries, or at least they sort of swap spots. And... Tamori and Calabria don't fight through to keep their markers. It's like in basketball in a pick and roll. They they don't decide to, to stick with their man. They decide to switch. And that puts Dzeko on Calabria. And then he just like muscles him off with his right arm as the ball comes in from Chalanolu and hits it first time with his left. It's a ridiculously difficult finish in a moment that does not find the back of the net often at all. Like super improbable, but an incredible moment. But it comes from Milan either not being committed enough to fight through to understand like we need to push right now to stick with our markers or it comes from a smart piece of play from Inter, or maybe it's a bit of both. But yeah, both uh, either a silly decision from Milan not to fight through, or them just not being fully mentally engaged to actually make that work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exemplified in a few other spots as well. There's the penalty decision that is then overturned. Uh, and I, I think I understand why it was overturned, uh, because I think initially the official judges that it's 
uh, Kyer pulls back or makes contact with Martinez and Martinez goes down. And that isn't the case, but it happens because off the throw, Martinez very easily turns Kyer. Then he's 1v1 with Tamori and he gets past Tamori who goes to ground. And that's when Kyer makes up the, di- the distance and tries to make a play. But watching it again and ignoring anything that happens anywhere else other than the feet, which is what Quentin Tarantino would do. Uh, but when I was watching it, uh, you see that when Tamori goes to ground, he clips Lautaro Martinez. So there is contact there, and that's when Martinez goes down. Maybe he goes down too easily. I think it gets overturned because the official called the penalty on Kyer. He obviously gives him the yellow card for it. But I think there's a reality in which you could have undone that decision, undone that yellow card, but then still given the penalty for the contact. Maybe it would have been soft, but there's that moment. There's Krunich later on just straight up punching, I believe, Bastoni, and (laughs) and that uh, isn't reviewed and isn't given, but that could have been another penalty and probably should have been a straight red. That was the confusing one to me. I think the first one, it's a marginal call, but for my personal opinion, there's just not enough contact. Mm -hmm. The second one, though, Krunich just punching Bastoni in the ribs. You You can't do that. Well, no. I don't understand why that wasn't reviewed. I agree. And uh, I hadn't seen this before. I saw on Reddit somebody pointed out that uh, Yapstam, the, the famed defender, less so uh, coach, uh, <laughs> like would argue that the way you know that that's intentional and you know it's a foul is that no defender ever makes contact with their fist. They're always kind of have hands outstretched, palms up. They're trying to, to either like make a little bit of shoving contact, but they're mostly just trying to feel where the opponent is without actually having to look at them so they can track the ball but track the player. When you're swinging your arm around and punching them in the ribs with your fist, I don't think you can make that same argument. So I think that's another example where Milan just didn't have that discipline, didn't have the necessary approach or calm in this game. And I think Inter, by contrast, did. I felt like this game stayed interesting because I think it was physical and sort of uh, feisty and, and the atmosphere was there. But I, the commentators uh, on uh, Paramount Plus were saying it feels like Inter aren't really trying to kill this game off, and they're not really trying to defend all that aggressively. They're just sort of letting the second half happen. But it also feels like Milan aren't really doing enough to make things happen. I think Origi coming on helps. But it did feel to me like a game that was sort of at 2-0, a little bit damage control for Pioli and Milan. And now I don't know how they, they, they turn this one around. Graham, do you have any reasons for optimism for any Milan fans who might be listening? If if Rafael Leao is fit, I've got reasons for optimism. I also think if Pioli learns from this match and ma- and makes those tactical changes, it, I, I can't see an Inter team that doesn't start with a front two, right? Whether it's Lukaku and Lataro or Zeko and Lataro or any combination, maybe even Wacking Korea coming in, it's going to be a front two, right? So I, I don't think matching up with Kyron Tomori works as I've already kind of outlined. So I would switch to a, a back three. Obviously, the back three works a little bit better if you can have that direct outlet with Rafael Leao being fit but even if he isn't fit I think you 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 look to make that you make that change for for Inter it kind of felt like I, I agree Taylor they just went through the motions in the later stages of, of this match but I I would th- there is a contrast between these two teams where Inter are they're much closer to the finished article than Milan. I know we're talking about two Scudetto winners here, and Milan were Scudetto winners last year, more recently than Inter. But that kind of felt like a head of schedule for AC Milan. They're they're a much younger team. I know they have Zlatan, who raises the average age of that team by a lot. But they, they're a much younger team. So far in this competition, they've looked more mature, certainly in that quarterfinal against Napoli. They've looked more mature than they have a right to. So I actually think this was kind of more of a revert to... 
the reality for East Milan of where they are in their progression. Whereas Inter have they've spent beyond their means. They're probably going to have to to sell one of Barella, or Lataro, or Bastoni this summer. So this is probably as as good as it gets for them. So maybe that's the positive for AC Milan is look, even if they lose this semi-final and obviously it'll be a hugely damaging defeat, I kinda wonder if Pioli comes out of that defeat with his with his job for the start of next season. Putting that to one side, this is still the early stages of a cycle for AC Milan, whereas for Inter, this is the culmination of something. Uh and and Graham, while we have you, if we're doing kit watch, we were you, were oh, you pleased yeah. with, with the blue stripes versus the red stripes? Absolutely. The the kits in this derby are just so aesthetically pleasing. It might be the most visually satisfying derby in world football with the, obviously, Milan's uh, black and red and Inter's black and blue. And also Inter, their their crypto sponsor yeah. uh, has collapsed, I believe, or yep. is able to pay the money. Never paid so them in- a dollar, I believe. Yeah, so Inter are paying, uh, playing excuse me, right now with without any sponsor, which just makes that kit look so much better. So, yes, kits were very pleasing in this game. It's weird how, with certain clubs, Nottingham Forest, uh, that does not make them look better. But with Inter, I agree with you. It makes them look sleeker. Everybody looks skinnier, I think. You know, (laughs) stripes will do that. Uh, Vertical stripes will do that. But I think also not having the big sponsor that sort of bulges out the jersey looks all the better. So I'm excited for the the return leg with the, I'm going to guess, exact same color scheme, uh, even if we're expecting a comfortable route to the finals for Inter. Uh, Rafael Leao hopefully coming back in will make that slightly less comfortable uh, just from a neutral atmospheric standpoint. Joe, any other points to mention from this one? Yeah, Milan are done. That's about all I got. Okay, there we go. Uh, Then one final thing, since Graham got to talk about kits uh, and his passion, we didn't talk about meat pies, but Graham loves him some kits. Joe, you love you some USU20 rosters. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, the USU20 World Cup roster, which kicks off on Saturday, May 20th. So that's not this upcoming Saturday, but the following Saturday. That was released yesterday as we're recording on Thursday. Had a number of, of really talented players released for this competition. Some not released as well, including Paxton Aronson, Frank Trek Frankfurt, Chris Brady and Brian Gutierrez were not released from their clubs. There'll be a couple of players that are coming in after the group stage if the U.S. makes it. That's what Mike Varis said yesterday in a press conference. That includes Kevin Paredes, who's with Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. There's a, a lot of talent on this squad. I don't... It's difficult to say what the competition level is going to be in this group. And it's it's also true that results aren't the most important thing at this level. But it is a good experience for these, groups, uh, for, for these guys, right? They got Ecuador in the first game. That, I expect, is going to be the most challenging one. Ecuador is a, a very promising, young, uh, develop, developing soccer nation at the moment. And, and we kind of saw some of the fruits of that at the World Cup. But you got Gagas Lanina, certainly the goalkeeper to watch. He'll be the starter for this group. You've got uh, Jonathan Gomez or Real Sociedad in the defensive group. Caleb Winder, uh, Caleb Wiley, excuse me, Caleb Winder. Joshua Winder in this group as well from Louisville City. Brandon Craig, Mauricio Cuevas. Like, there's, there's some names in here that folks know. Justin Che coming in from Hoffenheim. In the midfield, Daniel Edelman, I believe, is going to be the captain of this team. He's been a regular player for the New York Red Bulls this year, which kind of gives you an idea of what kind of player he is. Jack McGlynn is in the midfield group. Obed Vargas for Seattle. There's some talent there. And then in the attack, Cade Cowell, who will be suspended for that first game against Ecuador because of a scuffle in qualifying down in CONCACAF. So he won't be available. We won't see him start against Ecuador, but he'll be a key player as the tournament goes on. Kevin Paredes, like I mentioned earlier, will come in after the, the group stage, he could be the most talented player in this whole group. We don't know for sure. And then Darren Yappy is a player that I'll be watching up top. Colorado Rapids, number nine. This group is pretty light in the attack in terms of pure goal scores or even you know, pure 
wingers, and, and Yappy's not a winger, but he can fill in that void up top. I, I think if the U.S. do well in this competition, Yappy will probably have a good competition as well. Uh, I think there was also some uh, question as to whether or not Ricardo Pepe would be included mm. since he's age eligible, but the comment there was that he's, I think, proven himself to be at the senior team yep. level, not the U20 level. Joe, were there any other players that you would have liked to have seen, either that were called in but not released or that weren't involved outright? Uh, not not really, to be honest. Mm. There's there's a lot of talent in this group. There are also a lot of really young players in the U.S. core that, that aren't going to be here. Like, I, I would have been really excited about Brian Gutierrez. I think he would have been a key player for this group. Same with Paxton Aronson. Neither one of them were brought in. Pepe was, was always going to be a shot in the dark. I don't really have any major issues with any of those things. I understand why clubs want to keep their players for stuff like this because in Brian, Brian Gutierrez's case, he's he's a key player for the fire and the fire need help right now, as we talked about earlier this week. So, you know, it, it'll be a fun tournament. Three group stage games. If the U.S. do well, they'll advance to the knockout rounds and we'll see what kind of damage this team can do there. Joe, thank you for that uh, preview and look at the roster. Uh, I'm assuming we lost Graham for a moment. So to bring him back, uh, Kieran Tierney, Meat Pies, John McGinn. Yes, I was going to go. make one contribution, which was Ooh. just Go USA. Yeah, there we go. That's my there we go. Thank you, Graham. There. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> go USA, go Champions League. Uh, I thought these two games were were very fun, and the Milan derby was was more entertaining than I thought it would be. I talked about that in the preview that I was super hyped for City versus Madrid, and then felt like Milan Inter was definitely the undercard. But that game uh, entertained. Pretty much from the start to the finish. So I look forward to both of the return legs and talking about them with you both next week. Joe, as you said way earlier in this episode, we have one more show still to come on the TSS feed uh, for this week. We're going to be talking about Real Madrid and the big thing, how they keep doing the things that they keep doing. So be sure to check that one out. Thank you for listening to this one, uh, if you are still listening. Joe Lowry, thank you for your contributions today and for sticking with me through my technical difficulties. Uh, all good, Taylor. This was fun. Graham Ruthven, the same to you, but with your name instead of Joe's. <laughs> thank you, Taylor Rotwell. Listeners, uh, thank you all as well. Talk to you very soon. Mm-hmm.